This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. We want an easy answer, and 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 it can be a complex answer. What I mean by easy is that there are definable steps. We want an answer to life's societal problems that we can line up and say, first you do this, and then second you do this. Something preferably that's measurable that we can, um, uh, you know, uh, use assessment to evaluate the quality of these steps, right? Um, and improve. Yeah, I know, right? For <laughs> higher education. Yeah, it's very familiar. This is the kind of thing that that we want. This is what we're used to. Um, um, but if the thesis of my book is correct, and uh, our society has imbibed a false anthropology that the structures, practices, intuitions, values, aesthetics, attitudes, language that we use is based on the premise that we are fundamentally our own and we belong to ourselves. If that's the case, then the problem is diffuse. It's, 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 it's deeply ingrained. And while I would like to tell people, here's the mindset change that will set you free. Right. This is what people want to hear. Like, you just need to have a, you know, a, a you know, aggressive mindset or something, like a growth mindset or something. And you know, I, you know, I'm not my own mindset, and then everything's <laughs> going to get better. And um, I, actually, I do think if you if you begin to practice and understand and internalize the fact that you belong to God, and therefore in in an analogous way you belong to your family, and to creation, and to the church, and to your neighbors. Uh, I do think that it does bring comfort. Uh, I mean, it does. It does bring comfort, but it's not going to solve all the problems. Um, and there are going to be uh, forces in society that still pressure you to be someone in a certain kind of understanding of what being someone is, to have certain values, to achieve certain things. And that's not going to go away anytime soon. And I don't know of anyone who has... I've never heard a good solution to that, that on, on the societal level. So that makes it difficult. Uh, to write this kind of book because um you know the diagnosing is 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 much much easier than the the solution yeah it also makes it very difficult to merchandise based on this cuz i mean i could imagine hats pens um <laughs> toys oh there could be a movement yeah uh, yeah the the yen yano yano you are the not zim, your own the movement. zim zoom of you you are not your own or <laughs> that's right that's right to, it could be it's not to not, indict anybody. Yeah, it's not sexy. It's not, it doesn't got a nice ring to it. You know, that impulse that you're describing there, it, it is almost like somebody who's been in dysfunctional relationships for years and years coming into a counselor saying, you know, like, what, well, what, do you, what do you hope to achieve through this counseling? Like, oh, I just want to be fixed by, can we do that this session or next session? Or like, what do you think? What's the timeline here? It's like, you didn't, you didn't get into this hole quickly and you're not going to come out quickly. That's right. right? Um, and it, something you said there, though, is uh, intensely interesting to me, um, is that Whoa. you said to practice and internalize this. So um, why not? Just meditate on it, if I can use that um, that sentiment. Uh, why? Why? What do we? What? what how do you practice knowing mm-hmm. that you're not your own? 
yeah. Uh, it's it's not pleasant. Uh, <laughs> it's not easy. You know, th- so this is you know, I'm, this is a great. You're selling it here. <laughs> I'm really selling this book, aren't I? Yeah, uh, I love so it. So I don't give you all the easy answers. There's no five step plan to saving America or the Western society or whatever. Uh, and also, um, so my goal is sometimes I get asked, "What's the goal of this book?" And it's really twofold. One is that there's this inhuman burden that we placed on our shoulders, society's placed on our shoulders. It's it, both of us together. Uh, what I call the responsibilities of self belonging. If we belong to ourselves, mm-hmm. there are sort of natural uh, implications that are, I argue, inhuman. That, that that we just cannot bear them, and we suffer as a consequence of that. So the first you know, goal of the book is to lift that off, to help people see that's a lie. That's nonsense. It's not true. It's not biblically true. It's not factually true. You don't have to craft your own identity and become, you know, someone in order to have a validated life, et cetera, et cetera, which is very freeing if if, if we take that seriously. Uh, but the second half is, well, if if we don't belong to ourselves then we and we belong to God and we have burdens and obligations to others, we don't get to do what we want. Like, like there are going to be things that we deeply desire that we're going to have to say no to. And that answers your question, right? That's how we practice belonging to God is that, um, I have a son who's nine years old and, um, does not enjoy going to church. Nothing against my pastor. He just, uh, he's a nine year old little boy. He wants to run around. It's Sunday morning. He wants to run around. And, uh, frankly, there are many Sunday mornings where I just want to sit around and read. And there have been times where I've gotten up and been like, man, man, you know, we are so exhausted. Maybe we should just stay home this Sunday. And my son will immediately start complaining about church. And I realize, no, I've, I, I have to set aside my desires and practice belonging to God because my son is watching me and he needs to see that it's not about what dad feels like. We don't go to church when dad feels like it, when it's comfortable, when it's easy. We do it because we belong to a community and I need to be around, uh, you know, the other church members so I can see their needs and pray for them and sing with them and all these sorts of things. So, um, you know, that's, so it's in, in one sense, it's an easy question to answer. How do we internalize? Well, uh, we practice dying to self and choosing the good of others. Uh, but, but it's uh, in another sense, it's almost an impossible question to answer because there are innumerable possible, mm-hmm. you know, uh, opportunities, which is, you know, m- made that section of the book difficult to write too. Cause I'm like, just all of the things. Yeah. Well, and that's the, the, the longest section of the book is how we belong to Christ, right? Um, and, yeah. and then you have the, the addendum, and here's why, how, why I'm not going to tell you exactly what to do. But you, <laughs> you do, and, and part of it is, you know, I think of 1 Corinthians where um, this is the problem is unity, that they belong to each other. And Paul has to keep hitting them. You know, he has to hit, hit them along the, the, the contours of their particular sins, right? Sleeping with the, with the stepmom, uh, drinking the, getting drunk on the communion wine, uh, outbreaks of charismatic fervor, um, that seem to be unrestrained, but he keeps on returning to, to this theme of unity. And, and the, the phrase that I've come up to the kind of caricature, what he says there is kind of take the loss. Like, even if somebody's suing you, like, um, make it right on the way before you have to go to the judge. Just take the law, whatever it is, just take the loss for the sake of unity. Yeah. And I wonder if that's, um, that mentality can get parochial and specific in a, in a way of showing that you belong to people is like, are you willing to lose the fight, take the loss, be humiliated, stop doing something you really, really want to do? Is that follow along with what you're saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, uh, 
I really tried to convey this in the book, which again might not have been a bad uh, uh, idea for sales, but that that what I'm talking about is not it's just not my I so the example I gave is like going to church on Sunday when you don't want to go, right? So that's a minor inconvenience. Mm. But uh like you were saying, taking the loss, sometimes that's a real loss. Mm. Uh sometimes that means uh, sacrificing a career, saying I'm going to stay in this place. I could have this opportunity over here, but I'm committed to this place because I know that uh I'm serving these people in this capacity and this is good and this is where I need to be. Um, and you know it's a loss and and you will possibly be criticized for making that choice. Um, mm. you know, uh, in in uh, you know in marriage, um, it doesn't matter who you meet. It doesn't matter how wonderful, beautiful, interesting they are. It doesn't matter how much they like you. When you're married, that's it. You're married. And you don't get to pursue other happiness that you imagine to be out there. Mm. These are real sacrifices that are not easy. And that what's, uh, what I think is so important is that we have sources outside of us saying, you need to pursue your happiness because nobody else is going to do it for you. Mm. If you're going to be happy with that person, then you need to do that. You need to actualize that because it's not going to just happen. If you're going to be happy in that career, you got to leave your family and your community that raised you and your church and, and follow your heart and go there. Uh, without without you know concern for other obligations and um and so this demands a lot but what i what i try to say is that the 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 burdens of um the responsibilities of self belonging are unbearable they are inhuman in, na- in nature whereas i want to say that the the burdens of belonging to others are on a human scale they're difficult they they real dying to self is involved here but with the Holy Spirit's help, you you can do these things, and that I think is you know makes all the difference in the world. Uh, so I think of a couple. We're interested in pursuing the biblical thinking from this podcast on this, and I think of a couple spots. Um, well, a maybe I can just ask you the big question. I know you're not like a professional theologian, um, but uh, play one. You can play one on this podcast. Um, <laughs> Do you see any ways in which God belongs to us? And I mean it in the reciprocal way, not mm. that that God is possessed by us, but that he sees himself in, in a similar way as like he's constrained in what he can do um, and that he limits himself uh, with reference to us for the sake of communion with us. I mean, so if you enter into a covenant with people, um, there is, um, or at least the kind of covenant that God, that we have with God, then, then, mm-hmm. uh, I think there is, there are sets of, he has agreed to do certain things for us and, um, and he will, he will follow that. He will, he will follow through with that. But, um, yeah, that's a great question though. As- aside from that, the idea of covenant, I would say, hmm. Well, even covenant though. As soon as God is agreeing, like I, I point out to my students with Noah, as soon as he says, I'll never do this again, at this point, it is incoherent to say God can do whatever he wants um, mm. and all okay. consequences be damned at least. You'd say, well, Noah, if he does something other than what he's promised to do at that point, then he's not true to what his promise and becomes a specious creature like us. Um, right. So, yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, I've been thinking. Yeah, so the, the concept of 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 belonging. Okay, all right. Here's the answer. Yes. Okay. Yes, <laughs> um, and I think where we turn is union with Christ. 
So one way of understanding belonging is uh, a desire for a kind of union with someone. So in marriage, mm. there's a belonging to each other. Uh, not all belongings are the same. Not all unions are the same. But when you have a, uh, I, I was meditating on the the relation of, of, of parents to children, why that could be a particularly painful one. And I think one of the reasons is that uh, as a parent, uh, when the child is young, you feel that union. You feel connected to them. You feel. Mm. Um, you feel what they feel, you hurt for them, you rejoice with them, and then naturally they actually grow apart. Uh, and so one of the few relationships where in, inherently by design, there's actually a, a, you know, and there's still a connection, there's still a belonging, but it's, you know, it, it you separate. Um, so if that's the case, if all kinds of belonging involve a, a, a kind of union in some respect, um, and, and then certainly, uh, you know, we, we're in union with Christ and that's what that looks like. Um, there and it is reciprocal. Um, and uh, so, interestingly, with Christ, yeah. it, the the metaphors are, um, or the analogies, I should say, are with bride and bridegroom. So with children, there is this kind of leave and cleave uh, metaphor, yeah. but with Christ, it's grow together uh, into the relationship. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Hmm. Yeah, I was also thinking that the the Christ hymn in Philippians, if that's a sort of um, take the loss for the sake of, you know, Jesus who being equal, the, the mind of Christ who being equal to God, oh. th- did not count equality with God something to be grasped onto, right? Um, yeah. The In Genesis 2, specifically Genesis 2, when God makes man, and even in Genesis 1, the man is, is actually, there's, not, there's a Hebrew word for man, ish, and woman, isha. But that's not the word that's being used throughout Genesis 1 and 2. It's actually uh, ha'adam uh, because he was taken from ha'adamah, the, the dirt, right? He's, I say, so I call him the dirtling uh, or the dustling mm-hmm. or the soiling or the earthling, whatever you want to call him. Yeah. Um, but he's the, and, it, and it's specifically noted, and it's not just that he is the dirtling, but it, it's noted several times, for you were taken from uh, the dirt. Yeah. To dust you shall return, from dust you were taken. To, uh, and... Um, and, and the woman is noted as being taken from the man, for you taken from the man. So there's always this stated relationship of where things were taken from. And mm. I've, I've always kind of pictured that as um, setting up humanity. And, and by the way, animals are also dirtlings taken from the dirt with the breath of life in them, given to them by God. Mm. Uh, but they're somehow different from him and the woman. And that's the puzzle of Genesis 2. Um, but for me, I've always seen that as like, your ontological, you know, the nature of human existence itself is already that it, it came from somewhere and things belong mm. to each other. Um, yeah. So that that there isn't autonomous, autonomous man. And when God looks yeah. at man alone, he says, no bueno, right? This is not good. Uh, and, yeah. and, and puts them in a belonging relationship. And in fact, that fit mate or fit helper or strong ally, as one of my friends has taught me to say. Um, so... I, I'm wondering if does that play out in the trajectory um, that we therefore like the very nature of what it means to be a human is to belong to something. Yeah. So I I am not a philosopher, and and I didn't want to uh, <clears throat> get outside my wheelhouse. Hmm. Do you know what a wheelhouse is? I just had to learn this in a boat, right? Yeah. Okay. I didn't uh, know that. I I always pictured. Like I assume a, that's what I it don't was. Know. Like. 
yeah, that it's like where the wheel goes in a car. I didn't know if I, I the wheel housing, not to be confused the with the wheel housing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. In any case, um, one of the things I try to do with this book is go uh, uh, try to go a step beyond the uh, conversation about individualism in America, mm. which is which is part of what I'm talking about. Yeah. And I do want to talk about this in uh, in some sense in uh, either existential or you could say ontological terms. Right. This idea that to be a human, being mm. a human involves belonging. It inherently mm. always involves belonging and um, to others. And uh, and so to answer your question, yes, I mean, that that makes that makes total sense to me. Right. So um, we, we come from creation, which came from or, or, you know, the earth, which came from God. Right. And he breathed into us. Right. Mm. So there's always this before this uh, story, this community, this embodiment before us that we are indebted to and that we carry along with us and we're responsible for carrying to, you know, to future generations. Um, yeah, so that's part of what the, the argument I'm trying to make is that don't just think about ourselves as as not being individuals, right? Or, you know, getting away from individualism, American individualism, right. but but just more ontologically, to be in the world means to belong to someone else. Hmm. And um, and I mean, also humans always belong to their mothers, if not their father. They they belong to their mothers and yeah. fathers biologically. Um, their yeah. mothers. I don't know if the mothers have the advantage of having that nine-month uh, belonging or the disadvantage. <laughs> We'd have to take a poll, yeah. I think. Um, yeah, yeah but, and I think a lot of what you're doing in this book, it, it seems to be, if I can say it crassly, um, you're, you're, you're stating right. what should be obvious uh, to all of oh, us. Yeah. You you use a lot of uh, – I was a little surprised when I was reading through it. Uh, a lot of Jacques Ellul uh, shows up there. And I, I wonder why uh, Ellul is so prominent in your thinking. I mean, um, You know, uh, this is one of the, the best parts about um, – I don't know if I want to call myself a scholar, but 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 writing, reading, uh, is that sometimes you just stumble across a book and it just changes your perspective, and it's and it's uh, and and usually it's not something where you know uh, it, it, they're usually explaining something you've already uh, in, in, intuitively felt or seen mm -hmm. little glimpses of, and then all of a sudden they put language to it and an explanation in a system and you're like, oh my gosh, and this whole vista just opens up to you. And that was Jackie Lewell. I don't remember, I just, you know, who recommended it. I saw several people who, who I respect deeply, uh, um, you know, talking about Ilul and uh, the Technological Society. And so I read that while thinking about, while, you know, sort of researching for this book. And when I came across his, his concept of technique and I thought about the way these things overlapped. It was just it. It felt like a felt like a missing piece that mm. that, that explained explained a lot. Yeah, I think uh, he's uh, he's uh, very well used in the biblical studies as well. I think a lot of people stumble onto them and say. I have to say though, your book is like that for me too. A lot of these things, I feel like I had threads into, and then you put the threads together into this beautiful sweater, which I could oh, put on you. and enjoy. So this is yeah. You did that for me, which I genuinely appreciate. Um, 
The uh, actually, Selena Durgan, our director of operations and editor, she she had a question for you. If I can pose it uh, correctly, I'm not going to read it because she wrote three paragraphs to get to one question. Because that's how Selena is. Um, but she she is wondering uh, this kind of middle way that you're selling uh, this idea of not merely resignation as a uh, as a practice yeah. um but that, that there's this uh there's this way that uh resigning from something is affirming something else that there's no you yeah. know kind of like there's no there's no neutral acts um and her question was a little bit strange it was why isn't this obvious to everybody like why isn't like what <laughs> what what has happened that's a great that that christians are not like cuz i i do feel like if i if i put that to my grandmother she would be like well, yeah, I wouldn't have said it that way, but of course, right? This is how Christians are supposed to live. So, um, what what has happened that that hasn't been obvious to Christians who are trying to live out, um, you know, to, who are trying to belong to the Empire of God properly? Yeah, so, so if I understand it, so uh, is this referring to the? Uh, the idea of uh, sometimes they call it action and stillness. I'm getting it really from T.S. Eliot the, mm. and and from Elul, right? This idea that when we're in the city, uh, we're you know call, God is calling us to be in the city, which for Elul is really just it, you know the you know post enlightenment world, really for the most part. You know any industrialized country, uh, when we're in the city and we're called to be there, our a goal is not to come up with a a, a plan to transform the city uh, in some intricate, uh, well-intentioned, but, um, you know, probably harmful way, but but to display God in the city where we are with hope and knowledge that if God can save, make all of Nineveh repent, he can also make our cities repent, um, which is a difficult tension to have because we either want to say, I have the plan and I just need to execute it. And if and if I can't execute it, it's either because I have a, a poor will or because I'm not getting mm-hmm. enough support or funding or because those people are evil or whatever. And it seems like Elul's saying, that's not, you know, unless God is coming down and giving you the plan, you need to be faithful where you are, but you don't get to despair. You don't get to say, well, America's doing, going down the tubes. There's nothing we can do. No. like, And that's tough because like, we have yeah. to pursue justice without imagining that we're saving the world. Yeah. Uh, is, that, is that the— That's part of it. And I think that that was actually—you're stumbling onto a question I had as well, which is the—you um, talk about the—well, later in the book, you, the way I've heard it said is, um, you know— a, a, a drop can't change the direction of the river, right? Uh, so yeah. maybe maybe I need to do this thing. I, or I think of Shifra and Pua in, in Exodus 1, who they're just two midwives uh, working for the Hebrews. Um, yeah. and, and little did they know, you know, their actions and the actions of the other women in those, in those stories were going to change the direction of, of Egypt. But that wasn't like a plan, like, hey, let's put in a strategy together. If we save these boys— <laughs> Then one of them <laughs> might murder some dude someday, and uh, and then go on the run, and then come back with the power of God. Right? Um, I imagine they were in youth group, and their youth pastor was like, "Each of you can go out and change the world." If <laughs> and they're like, "That's why we're going to do it. Right, right. We're going to do this to change the world." No, that's exa- That's exactly right. Yeah, um, yeah. This so is one of my of favorite me- Stephen Wright. Uh, do you know Stephen Wright, the comedian? Do you ever remember him? I don't know. He was a famous one-liner comedian from the 80s, but uh, he said, yeah, you know, I used to watch those commercials with Smokey the Bear that says, only you can prevent forest fires. And he goes, I'd always look at those when I was a kid and go, 
me? <laughs> like, I'm the only one <laughs> who can prevent forest fires. <laughs> like, I better get to work. Uh, yeah, uh, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of our students have that pressure. Oh, yeah. Right. They, they've been told that repeatedly. And then they're just like, they're carrying, again, this responsibility of self-belonging. Yeah. So um, maybe maybe that question then was about this phrase I, I think I included in the book that um, that that we are called uh, to uh, renunciation in affirmation, not resignation. Yep. That was exactly it. I was just going to, that yeah. was the part that I was going to read next. So. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I've thought about this uh, quite a bit. I'm getting this a bit from, from Elliot. Why is it not intuitive? Um, <clears throat> It's really hard. So here's where I first realized this myself was I wrote an essay about uh, the nature of lust and desire um, and um, exploring the fact that for many men, many young men that I know, um, it's difficult to see a beautiful woman and not... um, uh, and not react in a couple of ways. One is this desire to possess. Mm-hmm. And another is a kind of bitterness or resentment because they can't possess this person. And um, in this article, I argue that the the the, uh, the proper posture is uh, a posture of thanking God for the beauty of others and thanking God that that beauty is not ours to participate in intimately. And this is true for all kinds of things, right? Like somebody has a job that you desire, or somebody has a car or a house or whatever it might be, uh, because I do think that it's difficult for us to see things that we know are good. We could see that and say, that is a, that's objectively good. That's beautiful. That's, mm-hmm. That person's interesting. Why can't I be with them? Um But if we have faith in the providence of God, and we have, and, and if we if we accept that we belong to God and therefore this life is not the only thing that matters. So we don't have to get it. We don't have to have the fear of missing out, right? Like Mm -hmm. if I'm not with the right person, then my life is pointless. Then what we can do is we can see something good over there and we can be thankful that it's over there and that it's not ours. We don't, we can thank God for his beauty. And so that's where I kind of um, settled on this idea that, that a lot of the Christian life involves, um, um, renou- renouncing things that you maybe desire, and they can be good things if you're in a different person, if you're a different person in a d- different position, but they're good things. So you renounce them. You say, I, I, "I, that's not mine to desire or to pursue or whatever," but you're renouncing it in a spirit of of affirmation. It's good that that thing exists. It's good mm-hmm. that this person is beautiful and interesting. Um, not resignation, because the temptation is to be like. And I'm bitter because I don't have this, or I don't want anyone else to have this, or you know, right. why are they attractive? That makes me mad. Um, why is this not intuitive? Why why is this difficult for Christians? Um, well, I, I probably you know this is such a reformed cop out, but sin, you know, it's it's <laughs> it's so much easier for us to uh, to yes, cling but to envy. Reformed and Wesleyan people at one point. This was the center of their theology. Uh, you know, I got books of Puritan prayers here that are all like every single one of them is renouncing something, right? Yeah. Um, so, like liturgically, what do you what do you think we've lost in our twenty first century uh, situation we find ourselves in, uh, where renunciation is? It's like people are almost like it's almost like ascetic. Like, oh wow, you were you renounce something that you could have had easily, but wouldn't be right for you. Wow, how brave! Yeah, <laughs> uh, right. No, that's right. And this this reminds me of the the line from Elul that you know when I, I end up 
talking about, which is something along the lines of uh, we must choose not to do all that we can do. Right, and that's kind of one of his ethics of uh, uh, of, of technology. Right, mm-hmm. when you just because you can do something, right. we must actually make an intentional effort not to do certain things. And you're right that that is form. We look at that like what's going on. I mean, maybe this is too simplistic, but I I would just say you know if we have an entire economy built on um, making f- people feel discontent and inadequate and envious, uh, and then assuring them that they have the right and ought to pursue whatever they can get by any means, then it's pretty hard even in the church for people to come uh, to, to normalize the idea of self-denial of of of, of uh, yeah uh, renunciation hmm. I just in you saying that it, it made me think of um Issues I see sometimes with earnest Christians saying things like, well, where in the Bible does it say, which is my favorite question, um, <laughs> that, that begins with, doesn't it say in the Bible somewhere that, um, or where, where does it say that I can't do this thing? Like, uh, uh, and, yeah. uh, and it reduces it all to this, like, this dysfunctional legalism, because uh, I think there's a functional version of legalism that can be uh, uh-huh. save us from some errors. But... Um, but really this – and I see it also in other ways with people that have this kind of idea that God has a singular will for me and I have to do that oh, thing. Gosh. And if I don't, then I'm not. And I'm, these all, as I was reading you, seem to be in some way – and I couldn't quite connect the dots – but seem to be symptomatic of me being the autonomous person that has pure agency here um, and their false anxieties and desires. and. So the idea that I can do all of these things, but I choose not to, I mean, I just think like, okay, marital counseling, like if, if you can't get this down as a young adult, like you're dragging a lot of bad stuff into a marriage, right? That's right. That's right. So yeah, those are two interesting observations, this idea of of, of singular calling, right? So there's this idea that that, that God has a, has, a, has a map for your life, a timeline for your life. And that you can know that, mm-hmm. right? And that he's going to give it to you. And that if you don't follow it, then you're going to be in sin, right? So there's there's that idea, which is, which seems sort of the opposite of freedom. But I'll explain, right. I think, a way of understanding that in a minute. But then there's this other idea where, where Christians can say, really, all things are available to me. I can have any career. If there's a career, I can have it with very few exceptions, right? So that, you know, organized crime, mm-hmm. prostitution, right? There are some things. Things where we'll say, okay, that's you can't work in pornography, okay. But a lot of other things, the assumption is uh, give grace, assume that it's perfectly legitimate and that a Christian can work or should work in that. And 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 even I, f- I feel like sometimes there's this. Um, it'd be very uncomfortable for you to say, you know, I think uh, this field, this this market is actually, um, at least for the most part, disordered and uh, uh, sinful, and I don't think Christians should participate in that. I, I feel like my, like my evangelical genes just get anxious just hearing myself <laughs> say that, right? Like there's just, no, we don't, we have yeah. absolute freedom, yeah. right? So so the, the freedom one, that's easy to see, right? If you are your own, then we want that kind of expansive uh, options. But, you know, the calling one is uh, a sense of security, right? Because we want to know uh, that our lives are meaningful and purposeful 
And when the horizon has been wiped away and it's just this blank slate and we don't know where we're supposed to go or what we're supposed to do or who we're supposed to be, there's tons of feelings of inadequacy and anxiety. And so an idea, and I don't think it's a healthy idea, but an idea of Christian calling where you feel like, well, I'm just going to figure out God's calling me to do this specific thing and I just have to follow these steps. And now I'm now I'm living in his will so I can feel okay with myself. Uh, that it's, you know, it's kind of security until, until, okay, you start off and you feel like I was called to ministry. This is it. This is my one thing. I'm going to do this. And then you start taking a, a Hebrew class and you realize I can't do languages at all. Right. right? Or, or, or whatever. And then you have this, not, not a, not an educational crisis. What major should I choose? This is clearly not where I'm gifted. Instead, it's an existential crisis. Mm-hmm. I'm, 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 I'm in sin. Right, I'm I'm in defiance of God's will for my life. I don't know what I'm going to do, um, and I've seen students walk through this, and it's it's painful. Um, and what I tried to argue in the book, I think, or at least when I give talks, I can't remember what I wrote in the book. It's a long time ago, to be yeah, honest. I, I understand. Um, is is uh, you know that 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 we have a lot of good things that we can do, and this is an exciting thing. And what we we have to be able to accept that. Um, God gives us good opportunities, and we just need to pursue one of those um, in gratitude and in faithfulness. And um, if that doesn't work out, we can do something else. Now, that that mindset doesn't work if you are your own because you can't afford mistakes. Mm. Like every mistake puts you behind and other people are getting ahead of you. But if we're not our own, if, we, if the point of our life is to worship God, then you know, you can you can try something, and and maybe for a season that's what's honoring to God, and that's what you need to do, and you can do something else later, and that's okay. Yeah. Um, there's not this one thing that's going to make your life meaningful. Yeah, and I think just hearing biographies of people, I think we often realize. I mean, when people ask you, "How'd you get into biblical studies?" I'm like, "Well, it's a funny story. <laughs> I stumbled backwards <laughs> about seven different ways." Uh, it was not. Yeah. It was a zigzag, but not a straight line. And man, I can't even imagine the pressure I would have felt if I thought that there was this thing that I was supposed to be doing along the way. Right. I've already decided that I'm. I am reading this book at the table with my my high schooler, and uh, oh. and I'm going to try and get my students to listen to you uh, or you read go. your stuff for uh, for extra credit. So there you go. Uh, Thanks. I mean, this is what they need. Um, I mean, I yeah. say it to them all the time, but just having somebody else. Say it and more coherently. It's it's amazing. It's like being a parent, you know. <laughs> yeah. You you want other adults in your kid's life saying the same things. <laughs> it's <even>. true. <laughs> like how many times do I mean, my students are like coming to my office and you know, I'm like, well, here's what I think, and they're like, oh, that's what my dad said, and I'm like, well, maybe you should listen. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> maybe your dad's not an idiot. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So. Yeah. Because um, it was written. I mean, I didn't in- intend to write this for students, but. You know, working with students every day, yeah. that is the lens that, that that came through. And I think it can be particularly helpful. I hope it is for them. So, the uh, You go bold in the, in the kind of the opening chapter or second chapter of this book where you say, like, let's imagine a woman who has children and might want to stay home or a parent, you know, who wants to stay home and all the things that are going to be, all the pressures she's going to feel uh, not to do that. What, are you insinuating that? Being a, uh, a stay-at-home parent is – well, how is that a renunciation, I guess, and how is that a show of belonging? To be a stay-at-home parent? Yeah. Um, well, I think I, tr- I try to make the claim that it's not 
you know, that it doesn't need to be normative. Like people don't necessarily need to do that. But um, I mean, um, you know, staying at home with your kids provides you all kinds of space to be hospitable, to care for your house, to care for your neighbor. Think about, you know, how much. Um, <clears throat> So, all right. So, 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 so the backstory is this is, you know, this is the story of my wife and I, uh, she, so she has two master's degrees, one in math and one in economics from Baylor. And, uh, we move out here. She works at OBU for a year. Um, then she stays home and tries homeschooling. And we had three young kids at the time now just, you know, one's 12. So, you know, it's a little bit easier, but, um, what was there was a, a number of things that were really frustrating. Uh, 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 one is it, it seemed in, intuitive to me that at least choosing the options to stay at home can be a good thing, mm. right? Choosing to say I'm going to invest, uh, as I think I say in the book, you know, is one of the most human things you can do to to it, you know, care for your your children in this way, right? There's lots of ways to do it, but this is one way, and it's a, it's a very beautiful thing. But just all the forces that made it, you know, so for my wife, it was renouncing you know, career opportunities, right? She, so she was saying, all right, I'm not going to pursue, um, you know, uh, data analysis. Instead, I'm going to stay home with my kids. Um, but, you know, in that, I tried to explore the way that, you know, while that's laudable in practice, you know, society makes it miserable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even, as you pointed out, the, the little ways in which just going to a party and everybody saying, what do you do? There's there's no socially acceptable answer for some in some circles uh, if you're a stay-at-home parent. Um, yeah, I mean, even among conservatives, because they can be like, you know, in one sense, they're like, oh, yeah, that's great. They're really supportive. But in another sense, they're like, okay, but I have nothing to say to you. <laughs> so it's like, okay. <laughs> what are we going to sure. talk about? Yeah, I, I think also when this comes up, Typically, it's the the mom who uh, stays at home. Not always, but um, yeah. I always think too that it shouldn't just be the mom that is renouncing. It like the the dad or whoever works should also be renouncing opportunities as well, cutting back on hours, making priority for the family. It should be a mutual renunciation. I think in a oh, ideal yeah. situation. Absolutely, and, and that's hard. That's yeah, all kinds of different pressures, but yeah the same fundamental pressure. And I, yeah. I think economically too, you know, thinking of my majority world friends, uh, like sometimes it's just not fiscally possible. Um, you know, even in the Northeast here, sometimes, um, just to live in the, the, the smallest place possible is going to require two people working depending on the level of education and pay. So it's not always possible, but, um, the, finally, I want to go back to this legalism issue. Um, how how you can imagine people who are just like just tell me what to do just tell me the rule to follow which is the pressure you got at the end of the uh, for the the book mm-hmm. um but how, is that in in and of itself that pressure is that an expression of the very problem that you're trying to diagnose yeah i i think i try or at least i thought about it um to make the argument that 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 itself is a desire for a technique right we want yeah. a technique to fix the problem that a society obsessed with techniques has created and um so what's what's a non-technique answer well i think a non-technique answer is um not assuming that you have the most efficient way to solve things, but choosing still to do good, uh, whether it's the most efficient. And I, and I think 
this conversation is, I think, really important when it comes to, you know, justice issues, which are, you know, uh, on the minds of our students and everyone, you know, most people right now, um, because, uh, you know, p- people can make arguments about, well, this is the most efficient, efficient way or the effective way. Like, this is a means, you know, this is a data proven way of fixing this racial problem. And sometimes we just have to do things because it's the right thing to do. Right. And it might not like long term fix things. And that's OK. That's all right. Um, but that's a different kind of perspective. Is that, that, that so that is not identical to, uh, don't let the perfect, uh, you know, get in the way of the good or something like that, but it is inclusive. Have you heard this phrase before? Yeah. 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 I would say it's inclusive, inclusive of it. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, yeah. Except that that, that saying can also just turn into technique, right? <laughs> so what you could do is you could just say, all right, yeah. So the perfect is actually inefficient. Right, shooting for the perfect—it's never going to happen. So it's really so. What we have to do is lower our standards and figure out actually. So maybe in some cases, like actually having that more perfect standard right. might actually be what we need to do because yeah, it's it's yeah, it, maybe we can't accomplish it, but it's the most human way to treat each other. So uh, what you do ultimately is you make room for the idea of stumbling around as a Christian community uh, a little bit more than I think most people are comfortable with. <laughs> Um, and well, this has come up several times in different conversations in various ways. So we've had a whole series on uh, repentance, um, where we talked to Congolese war survivors and the Den Holland, Rachel mm. Den Hollander, and others. Yeah, and really thinking even about the idea of grace and forgiveness in Christian community. That if the ideal is that you have this deep heart penitence and everybody has a come to Jesus moment. Um, um, but if if you're held hostage to that view of it has to be that or nothing else that you know like a cliff system of forgiveness, um, then you can't make room for what the biblical authors seem to envision as well, which is like, hey, you need to be able to live in the same village without anybody like killing somebody else for the wrong they committed to their family, right? <laughs> like, like you just have to be able to let something slide with some processes in place, right? Um, right. And so I, I wonder, and, and to me, that just is another expression of because we belong to each other and we belong to God in a particular way. And so you tell me if I'm overstepping your thesis here. Um, like there's, we need to have these different degrees in which we can um, mediate our belonging to each other and and mediate like we're not going to kill this person. We're not going to throw him in jail because we don't have accommodations for jail in, in, the, in the scripture. Uh, we just need to like find some way in which we can occupy the same space and not kill each other. Right. No, I think that's, I think that's true. I think that's true. And, um, where I think that's particularly relevant, um, is, you know, I don't know if we want to call it a post-secular world is very contested term, but, 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 you know, we know what you mean by that. Yeah. 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 Whatever the tensions we're experiencing and continue, and, and they're probably only going to increase, right. And, uh, this is one of the reasons I like, I love Elul when he, when he talks about, um, in his book, the meaning of the city. Speaking of his, his, you know, his scriptural, biblical studies, uh, his work is, you know, he's, you know, he describes sort of the norm as being in in exile, mm. and and still and and not, you know, and getting along with your neighbors and uh, seeking to have uh, peace with them um, without expecting the whole system to change. 
um, which I, I don't think is 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 as is, is entirely as satisfying as we want. But I think it's I think it's realistic, and I think it's good. I'm not sure if that quite gets to what you were talking about. This idea: Are, are you talking about grace for each other, or is there a particular part of the book you had in mind? Or um, no, I, it was a it was a, a theme of uh, I, I call it stumbling around. Right that um, that there's this way in which we don't uh, we're not going to get the answers this side of the return. Um, okay, and so there's there's yes. some way in which stumbling around actually puts hope in um, the final reconciliation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I think that's I think that is exactly right. Um, I do, you know, and I and I, one way I address this is the the idea of you know what I negatively describe is is coping mechanisms. Yeah, yeah. And this, you know, this came out of my first book when you know, which I write about a lot about distractions, and then I you know went around talking to people about it, and they wanted to be like, well, so what is your great aesthetic life, right? Where you're just you know, you know and I was like, I, well, I also watch sitcoms, and I I have a phone. Um, and so I started to, you know, I started to sort of interrogate myself and 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 look at other people. And I, the conclusion I came to is that that in my initial book, I made too strong of a claim about the reasons why we're distracted. And so some of the reason is because we don't want to look at ourselves, but it, but it seems to me also because we live in a world that is deeply inhuman, mm-hmm. and sometimes we need to get through the day. And so one of the ways I try to uh, you know, allow people to stumble around is that I recognize, you know, some people that means, you know, watching a football game and that, that is a way of now. And, and in the book, and this was one of the hardest things, you know, it's such a fine line. And I don't know if I threaded it correctly. You thread the line. Yeah. Speaking of mixed metaphors. That's my malapropisms uh, have infected you. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Um, you know, is you know, uh, would it be better to watch a, a football game for three hours or four hours or whatever, or you know, read Shakespeare or read the Bible or something, right? And there's always this sense, and we can guilt ourselves mm-hmm. as feeling like I've got to be make efficient use of our time. And one of the places where I I, I try to argue is that you know, this is just going to be tough. Mm. Like this living in this society is going to be very difficult and we need to have grace for each other. We need to encourage each other uh, and inspire each other. But um, we also have to recognize, yeah, we are stumbling around and um, there are going to be periods where it's like, we just come home and, you know, it's chocolate and and a, a sitcom after the kids go to bed and then you crash, right? And that can be okay for a period too. Yeah, so. how long is that okay? Because I'm in like year seven of that, I think. Yeah, so well, 18 is when they're adults. Oh, so. okay. <laughs> Almost out of the woods. Yep, yeah. Well, scholar, writer, entrepreneur, Dr. <laughs> Alan Noble. Thank you so much for your wisdom and guidance. The book is called You Are Not Your Own. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.